Who are the real people we consider our sages? Who were they in life? What is the legacy they left us? Join Rabbi Danny Saxton for the next hour as he explores the lives of our Torah giants, the spiritual geniuses who shaped the way we approach Judaism today. That's focus on our sages right now on 101.9 High FM. Good afternoon and welcome to Salt to Salt. Always wonderful to be with you on a Wednesday afternoon. Today is the 24th day of the month of Shvat, the Hebrew calendar. And uh, on Monday was the 22nd of Shvat. And on the 22nd of Shvat, it was the site of the Kotsk Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Kotsk. And a few weeks ago we discussed about um, the Gerach Hasidim. We spoke about the Shvat Emes. Um, who was one of the great uh, Hasidic rabbis of the Hasidic group called Ger. And we discussed the history of Hasidus and how um, the um, group of Hasidim broke away from mainstream Hasidus um, and they went to a town called Ishbitz and under the leadership of the Ishbitzerov, they uh, were able to develop a new approach. And uh, after he died, his Talmud, the Kotzke Rebbe took over, and after him it was um, the Chidush Arim and then Sfas Emes, and that led to the tremendous um, development of the of the Gera Hasidim. So we did discuss in detail the history and background of the Kotzke Rebbe, um, so we won't do that again today, but it is important to remember what a great person he was, Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Kotzk. He was born in 1787, he died in 1859, um, on the 22nd of Shvat, and uh, he was uh, a person who was an ish MS, completely focused on truth and on MS and on being a true Eved Hashem, an honest and sincere servant of the creator of the universe. Um, he was a great genius. He was a person who had great self-sacrifice in his development of himself and his connection and dedication to his service of Hashem. And uh, he didn't like to be seen as a, you know, a holy man uh, in the role of piety. He was, he was completely um, dedicated to the quest of self-knowledge and truth on a daily basis. He's known for many famous statements. For example, one of his Hasidim said to him, where is God? And he answered and said, God is wherever you allow him to be. Um, and so we remember the great and holy Sfasem, uh, Kotzka Rebbe, Rabbi Nachman of Kotzk, whose yacht site was on the 22nd of Shvat. 22nd of Shvat was also the yacht site of the Manchester Rosh Hashiva, Rabbi Yehuda Zev Siegel. And uh, he was a, a very brilliant person, a, a modern-day tzaddik, righteous individual. In fact, this year is the 30th, um, so on Monday was the 30th yacht site of the Manchester Rosh Hashiva, Rav Siegel. And um, there are many wonderful stories about him and Legends about him, um, and he he actually there's uh, a famous story that one Yom Kippur, um, people many people from all over the world would flock to Manchester to daven with him on the Yom Narayim on Yom Kippur in particular, and after Kolnidre davening they would queue up to get a bracha from him on Yom Kippur, which was a powerful thing, and uh, one year after having given brochas to all the people that came to daven with him, he got home at about 2 o'clock in the morning, and there was a bocha who had accompanied him, and as he got home, he saw Sefer Chofetz Chaim on the table, and he picked up the Sefer, and he kissed it, and he said, the Heliger Rebbe, 
And this student of his said, you know, why is the Chovetz Chaim the Rebbe? He said, because the Chovetz Chaim saved my life. He said, there are so many Isurim when we speak Loshon Haro, when we speak the many laws about not speaking in a derogatory way against our fellow. And um, the Chovetz Chaim describes those laws and defines the laws of Loshon Haro very clearly. And he said that because the Chovetz Chaim had done that and showed us how to guard our tongues, so that definitely saved his life and prevented him from stumbling and falling in this tr- tremendous Avera. And so, um, in fact, when he was a young boy, um, Rav Sigal was a Talmud of the Mir Yeshiva, and he went to visit the Chovetz Chaim. And it had a tremendous impact on him, meeting the Chovetz Chaim. And, uh, you know, who would have known that he would become known as the Chovetz Chaim of our door, the Chovetz Chaim of our generation. And he came up with a brilliant concept, a brilliant idea, that we should break down the learning of the Sefer Chovetz Chaim and learn two halachas a day. And he came up with a calendar in which people would learn on each day, you know, those two halachas, following his calendar. And... Um, it, uh, in fact, today we see most versions of the Chovetz Chaim printed both in Hebrew and in English. They include Rabbi Siegel's calendar. Um, and he was also one of the founders of and one of the um, trustees on the board of the Chovetz Chaim Heritage Foundation. And there was a tremendous, tremendous innovation which resulted in many thousands of Jews learning the laws of um, speech, of proper speech and of incorrect speech. Um, on a daily basis. He was known for his tefillah, for his davening, and he would uh, be a person that um, when he davened, one could sense that he knew he was in the presence of Hashem. The halach is when we daven Shemun Esrei that we have an audience with the Melech Malchem Lachim HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And that's why we're not allowed to walk in front of a person who's davening Shemun Esrei. One's not allowed to walk Dalit Amos in front of a person. And which is two meters because they have an audience with the king. The Shekhin is there. God's presence is there. And we are, should not disturb that and not walk in, in the presence of that. So one certainly could sense the power of davening and the, the fact that he felt very strongly that it was, he, he was in God's presence when he davened. Um, in fact, the, when the Gulf War broke out and there were Scud missiles being fired, by Iraq, by Saddam Hussein on Eretz Israel. So people noticed that he was particularly fervent and emotional in his prayers. And somebody said to him, we see that you're taking this very seriously, or you're davening for your relatives in Eretz Israel. So with great uh, shock, he said to him, I'm davening for Kal Israel. The Jewish people are in danger, and I'm davening for the Jewish people, which is what he uh, lived by and very much felt. He felt it very deeply. Um, he uh, um, saw people many hours every day and advised people and gave them brochures and uh, people called him from all over the world and uh, you know, once somebody called him and told him that his young child had died and uh, the Rosh Hashiva was so moved by it and he was so sad he cried for many hours after that call from a person that he never ever knew so he really felt the pain and empathized very deeply with the Jewish people the Moshe Feinstein and the Satmarov would send people to him um, to get a bracha um, because his bracha was so powerful. And of the thousands that flocked to him for his advice and for his blessings, so he always advised them 
and said that you should learn two halachas a day that will bring a tremendous amount of bracha, of blessing to your life and to your family. And he actually would say that there's no family who's committed to and taken on turning to learning two halachas a day that didn't see great Yoshua, they didn't see salvation and the lifting of, of something, of bringing great blessing into their lives. And he said when he was buried, he said he wants to be buried with the calendar that he had produced with the calendar of turning, learning two halachas of Shemir Saloshan Day. And he said, because that's his ticket to Oilam Haba. That's how he's going to get into Oilam Haba. So I'd say in, in his great memory, it is a wonderful thing. We should all take on ourselves to learn the laws of Shemir Saloshan. And today there are many wonderful books in English, um, of these laws and of the reason why we shouldn't speak Loshan Hora. And so everybody should take on to be careful with how they speak and to be very, very vigilant in not stumbling in this area of speaking Loshan Hora, which we know is so, so difficult. It's so hard. It's so easy to say a nice, juicy piece of gossip and to share it with others. We get a thrill out of that. But it's a tremendous transgression. And there are many, many um, prohibitions that we are there's 24 loves and 12 positive commandments that we're fulfilling when we don't speak Loshan Hara that the Chofetz Chaim describes very clearly. And so we should be very careful with this and follow the leadership of the Manchester Rosh Hashiva, Rav Sigal, and take on two halachas a day, to try and learn two halachas a day of Shmira Saloshan, of the laws of Loshan Hara, will really be life-changing to us and will be a source of great blessings to us and to our families. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. So what I want to discuss with you now is um, a very interesting and fascinating subject, and that is the Velozhin Yeshiva. Um, the Velozhin Yeshiva was the mother of all Yeshivas, the first Yeshiva in the Jewish world, a great novel concept of Rav Chaim Velozhin, which he had um, <clears throat> discussed with his Rebbe, the Volnagoan, and he wanted to open a Yeshiva, an institution of learning, which was a great, a new innovation and departure to the normal way how Torah was taught in Eastern Europe. And the, the Goan encouraged him to do so and said it was critical for the future of the Jewish people. There was a time when he wanted to start. The Goan said the time wasn't right. And then he gave him the go-ahead. And so he opened the Avalajan Yeshiva. And it was really the foundation and future of learning for the Jewish people and the mother of all Yeshivas. And this uh, month, uh, the month of February, is exactly 131 years since the closing of the Lajan Yeshiva. Lajan Yeshiva closed in 1892, and um, it was closed by the Russian government. They wouldn't allow them to operate the Yeshiva anymore. They put all sorts of restrictions on um, the institution, which made it absolutely impossible for them to continue to operate. And so they were forced to close in 1892. Um, so what I would like to do with you is to, to share a little bit about what the Lajan was, and what I'm going to say is based on um, what I heard from Rabbi Wan, uh, Rabbi Beryl Wan's grandfather, whose name was Rav Chaim Tzvi Halevi Rubinstein. 
he was a Talmud of Velozhin from 1896 to 1892 when it closed. And he gave Rabbi Wana a very unique and clear insight into what Velozhin was like and how Velozhin operated and why it was really the foundation of um, the future of the Jewish world and all the great yeshivas that developed in the uh, 18th and 19th centuries um, were a clear product of Velozhin. So Velozhin wasn't only a place where which produced great Rabonim, great Talmudei Chachamim, great Jewish scholars, scholars, but also there were many socialists and many Zionists and many poets that came out of Velozhin. For example, Bialik was a Talmud of Velozhin, and he was uh, the Bialik actually said about Velozhin that it was the intellectual factory of the Jewish people. There are many books and many articles written about Velozhin, many of them by students that were not religious, not observant, but all of them having a unanimous loyalty, nostalgia, and love for the institution. So let's start out with the admission to um, Velozhin. In order to get accepted by the yeshiva, to get admitted to the yeshiva, it was quite a difficult process. There were only between 300 and 350 students at the maximum, at maximum um, in Velozhin. Today we have religious learning institutions, yeshivas that are much larger than that, but that was the maximum size of Velozhin. In order to get into the yeshiva, so you would have to produce a letter from the rov of your town, and the rov of the town um, would address the letter to the administration of the yeshiva, to the Rosh Yeshivas. The Rosh Yeshivas were the Natsiv, Rav Naftali Tzvi and Rav Chaim Soloveitchik, the great Rav Chaim. And um, the, the, there were other members of the administration, they were called Beis Arab, which came from the family of Rechaim Velozhin, who founded the yeshiva. And the letter would have to say that this individual was an outstanding scholar, and um, the, you know, that would be the first step. Now, also, the yeshiva was supported by the other towns of Lithuania. So, um, it, all the towns, Rechaim wrote a letter to the Rabonim of the towns in Lithuania saying that this educational institution was essential for the future of the Jewish people and that um, he would rely on the support of the Rabonim of these towns. And the, the Rabonim of the towns would then send money from their kahilis. They would raise money for the yeshiva and send it to um, to the yeshiva. And so depending on the amount of money that a town gave, it would allow for students of that town to be admitted into the yeshiva. So if it was a very small little town that didn't give any money to the yeshiva, so it was very unlikely that any students from that town, no matter how outstanding they were, would be um, accepted into the yeshiva. But if it was a larger town which played their part in supporting the yeshiva, so then there would be a much greater chance that the those students that were nominated by that rov would be accepted. So, for example, Rabbi Wan's grandfather, Rabbi Rubenstein, so he his parents... Um, lived in a very small little town that didn't contribute to the yeshiva and they saw that their son was a prodigy, was uh, had the potential to be a great Tamil Chochem and so they actually moved to a larger town in order that the rov of that town would uh, nominate him and put him forward in order to, rest, to be accepted by the yeshiva which was the case, which is actually what happened and that's how he got admitted into the yeshiva the living conditions were very primitive 
um, people, there were no dormitories. So actually, Volozhin became a, a, a supposed to be compared to like a college town of today. So one of the largest industries in the town was the yeshiva itself. And people would then, the, the students would stay in the homes of the families that lived in Volozhin. And the Natsiv would subsidize their board and lodging. So if it was a student whose family didn't have any money, so he would pay for that student to live with that family for the board and lodging. If it was a student from a family that did have money, so then he would pay very little or, or not anything. He wouldn't subsidize the, the board and lodging um, for that student with that family. Um, the yeshiva, like all yeshivas, never had enough money and always was struggling for money. Um, you know, back in the 19th century, so there was no electricity, there was no running water in the yeshiva, it was all outside, and we're talking about East European winters, which were freezing cold, below zero temperatures. Um, it was a brick building, which actually was quite a luxury in those days. There were not many brick buildings in Lithuania. Most of them were like these wooden sheds. It was a brick building, and it was lit by candlelight. Rabbi Rubenstein, Rabbi Wine's grandfather, said that um, if he, he summarized Velozhin as a place of love. And there were three areas where that love was concentrated. Avas Torah, the love for Torah. Avas Klal Yisrael, the love for the Jewish people. And Avas Eret Yisrael, and the love for the land of Israel. And he said, Rabbi Rubenstein, that these were three clear tenets by which Velozhin ran, which were clear, powerful characteristics that were dominant in the worldview of the yeshiva. So, of course, firstly comes the Avas Torah. And the Torah being learned in Velozhin was just magnificent and on a very, very high level. Um, Rochaim Velozhin writes in Nefesh Rochaim, in his classic work, that the world survives, the world is in existence due to the learning of Torah. And as a result... He wanted there to be a 24-hour seder in the yeshiva. In other words, he didn't want one moment where Torah wasn't being learned in the yeshiva because he felt the sustenance and the existence of the world depended on it. Um, today, you know, we, we, we are fortunate that there's always Torah being learned because there's massive, massive Torah institutions there all over the world. And because of time changes, it means that Torah is being learned all the time. Rechaim Velozhin wasn't confident in the 19th century that that was the case in the world, and therefore he felt the responsibility that his institution would have to have learning all the time. And so they had Sodorim that went 24-7, 365 days a year. Uh, there, there were eight-hour shifts, and so the new students would get the graveyard shift. They would have to learn. They said it would be from midnight until 8 o'clock in the morning. And... Uh, Rabbi Rubinstein said that his first two years in Belosian, that was his seder. That's when he had to learn um, through the night, which is quite unbelievable with candlelight, isn't it? Um, there, there were some people that even did more than one shift. There was a very famous Talmud, his name was Rosh Shlomo Polishik. He became the Rosh Yeshiva of uh, Yeshiva's Ravitzak Elchonon in New York later on. Um, he was known as Rav Chaim's best student. He learned two shifts, 16 hours a day he learned. And nobody could learn with him for more than two hours. He was just too powerful. He was too strong for everybody. So he had eight chavrusas um, in those 16 hours of his learning. And as I mentioned, it was a very high level. Rubenstein said that 
one winter's man, the entire yeshiva finished Maseches Gitin and Maseches Kedushin with Chazora in one winter's man, which was, you know, a tremendous amount that they learned, um, both quality and quantity. Today, yeshivas, we learn a lot less. Today, we go much slower in yeshiva. But in Velozhin, they not only did they cover the ground, but they did it with tremendous depth. Um, there was no such a thing as Benaz Manim, and everybody stayed in the yeshiva. So for Pesach, they couldn't afford to go home. They were there. The Netziva used to, used to run a seder with over a hundred Bochrim over there. Rabbi Rubenstein says he remembered, uh, his picture of Yisias Mitzrayim was the Netziv sitting at the table all in white wearing his kittle with his white kippah and his bright eyes reliving the uh, exodus from Egypt. That's his picture of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. And so too Rabbi Wine says, so his vision and his, in his mind, Yitzhak Mitzrayim looks like his grandfather sitting at the head of the table all in white going through the Haggadah. Rabbi Wine, actually I want to ask him, he's written uh, many books, Rabbi Wine, really outstanding books, which I highly recommend on history and on all parts of Jewish life. I said to him, what's his favorite book? He says, his Pesach Haggadah. Because it's, it's like him sitting with his grandfather. So you go through that Haggadah, it's like you're sitting with the native at the Pesach Seder. Okay. So the style of learning in the yeshiva was quite um, broad. In other words, you had Reb Chaim. And Reb Chaim Soloveitchik introduced a new way to learning Talmud, which was very analytic. And uh, there were many geniuses that were attracted by Reb Chaim's analytic style. And uh, those Talmudim of his also spread that approach to learning. And most yeshivas today, the Eon Seder, which means the morning Seder, follows the system and the approach of Reb Chaim. So that was one one part of the yeshiva. And uh, Rab, uh, uh, Rab Rupestein said the Nitziv would often refer to Rav Chaim's Iluyim, you know, the geniuses that would follow Rav Chaim and his uh, approach to teaching. And the Nitziv, his style was different. His style was to um, see more Rishonim and to see all the Rishonim. He saw, he covered everything. Um, and uh, Rab Rubenstein, Rab Wine's grandfather, was a um, Talmud of the Nitziv, a very close Talmud of the Nitziv. Nitziv would give a Chumashir in the Yeshiva um, every morning after davening. And only about 30 or 40 Bochim would go to that Shir. It's from this Shir that he wrote his Sefer Hemek Davar, which is his classic work on the Chumash and a work of tremendous genius, um, which we benefit greatly from the depth and beauty and the explanations of that parish of the Nitziv. It came from that Shir where there were only 30 to 40 Bochim every day. Um, within the yeshiva also there was the Haskalah, which was the enlightenment. In other words, you had many of the students that were drawn to and taken up with many of the theories and of the, um, of the, um, principles of the Haskalah, of the enlightenment movement and of socialism and of communism. And so often the Nativ had to weed out those, uh, influences in the yeshiva, which were Neged, they were anti-religion, they were anti-God, and we see, the, you know, in our world, 2023, we see the those movements and those um, and those philosophies very much alive and well in our world today, particularly on the left, in the progressive world, 
And um, so back then, even, you know, 150 years ago, those battles were being waged. The same thing was happening even in the great Velazhina Yeshiva, which is quite an unbelievable thing. The Yeshiva never had a Mashkiach. They didn't need a Mashkiach because there was such a love for learning. Everybody was self-motivated and the, the Talmudim learned very hard. They took on tremendous amounts to learn. They made commitments to themselves that they kept to. And there was a wonderful atmosphere of love of Torah and of commitment um, and of Hasmada, which is uh, which is diligence in one's learnings. But Natsiv, would, the, that love of Torah really abounded throughout the yeshiva. So Rabbi Ruzin would say, Natsiv would often say, isn't that beautiful? Have you ever heard anything so beautiful as that piece of Torah? Or he would say, is there anything more sweet in the world than that Gemara, than that Toysvus, than what Rabbi Yotam is saying? That was the the approach to learning that was the environment and atmosphere in the yeshiva, and it very much stayed with the Talmudim. And so in 1892, when the anti-Semitic Russian government closed the yeshiva, it was a very sad day for the Jewish people, for Klal Yisrael, but they had no choice, unfortunately. Reb Chaim left, and he went to um, Brisk, and he took over his father's position to become the rabbi, of the town of Brisk. And the Natsiv, we're going to discuss shortly, he had a great love for Eretz Israel. He wanted to go to Eretz Israel. And together with about 15 of his students, he embarked upon the journey to get to Eretz Israel. Unfortunately, when he arrived in Warsaw, he had a stroke. And a few weeks later, he tragically died. And in fact, the Natsiv is buried in Warsaw. He's in the Warsaw Cemetery. I've been there. He's buried next to Reb Chaim. So both him and Reb Chaim are buried in the Warsaw Cemetery. It's a very powerful thing to go to see their graves. And the Warsaw Cemetery itself is a very mysterious, powerful place where many holy people are buried. Um, so that's the aspect of 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 uh, Ava Satoya. Just in parentheses, it's very interesting to note that Rabbi Wine's grandfather, after the death of Natsiv, he was one of the Talmudim that went with him. To, was attempting to go to Erzor with him. Often Nassif died in Warsaw. He made his way. He got married, actually. They, had, they found a Mashiach in Warsaw. And he went to Eretz Yisrael. And he went to Rav Kook. Rav Kook was also a Talmud of Velozhin. Rav Kook at that time was in Yafo. And to, and he's opened a yeshiva over there, Rav Rubenstein, called Share Torah in Yafo. In fact, the building still exists over there of Share Torah. In 1907, he, Rav Shmuel Salant was looking to uh, replaced his base in. He was getting old and he offered him to come. He went to Yerushalayim in 1907 and uh, then he went to fundraise for the Yidin in, in Yerushalayim who the, the, the conditions were very, very difficult. They had no money at all. He went to the United States. While in the United States, he was offered a job and he became a rabbi in South Chicago in the Bnei Ruven Shul. So that's how Rabbi Wine ended up in Chicago. His parents met there and were married there and he was born in Chicago, which is an in- interesting side to the story. So we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll discuss the tremendous Avas Yisrael that was in the Velozhina Yeshiva. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM.
We're talking about the Voloshin Yeshiva, 131 years since it was destroyed by the Russian government. And the one of the, the, the three tenets upon which Voloshin was built was Avas Torah, the love of Torah, which we've discussed, the love of Yisrael, Avas Yisrael, the love of the Jewish people, and Avas Eretz Yisrael. So with regards to Avas Yisrael, um, the Yeshiva took responsibility for Klal Yisrael and felt the the love for every Jew. There's a famous story about Rochaim Soloveitchik that uh, he later became the Rav of Brisk, as I mentioned. And um, there were two Jews that were arrested by two Jews that were actually communists, and they were arrested by the communists by the Russian government after the revolution, and uh, their lives were in danger even though they themselves were communists. Um, the peace-loving progressive communists were going to kill two of their own. And so Reb Chaim got up. It was, was Erev Yom Kippur. Just before Kol Nidra, he got up. He said, there are two Jews that have been arrested by the communists, and uh, we need to raise money for their ransom because they got word that if they could bribe the guards to get them out, um, and we're not going to start Kol Nidra until we've raised that money. Everybody went home, got money, came back, uh, obviously, Yomkiru wasn't in yet, and only once they had raised the money, and even I, I think even after it was already Yomkiru, they all brought the money. Two Jews' lives were in danger, so then they started Kol Nidra. Isn't that unbelievable? So we see that's a sense that was Velozhin. The, the love for one's fellow Jew was paramount and was something that was very much at the forefront of everybody's minds in Velozhin. There's a famous story about the Natsiv. The Natsiv, he um, somebody. A wealthy Jew from the United States gave him a carpet. Remember, in those days in, in Lithuania, the floors of the homes were, were sand, were dirt. And so it was probably the only carpet in all of Velozhin. And one day somebody came in to see the Natsiv and he had all mud on his boots and the mud was getting on the carpet. And somebody in Natsiv's home said, you know, please don't stand on the carpet. You're making the carpet dirty. And uh, this person was embarrassed and the Natsiv saw it and he said, Take the carpet and throw it out," he said. "The cop, the feelings of a Jew can never be put in the way, can never be pushed aside by a carpet." Um, so that was the mindset, that was the the worldview of um, the Jews of Velozhin, of the Talmudim, of the Yeshiva of Velozhin. Um, for example, Rabbi Rubinstein was very much a product of Velozhin. So um, he his wife died, and his daughter and son moved in with him to look after him. He was already an old man. And uh, his daughter was at the end of his life. It was during the war years. His daughter for Pesach had, had uh, found a painter and uh, arranged for the house to be painted. Rabbi Rubenstein came home and he saw the painter and he said to him, you know, what are you doing? He said, your daughter um, commissioned me to paint the house. He said, how much did she say she would pay you? And he told him. He went inside. He came out with the cash. He gave it to him. He said, um, thanks very much for we do. I don't want you to lose out, but we don't want the house to be painted. And so his, when his daughter came up, she said, you know, what are you doing? Why, why did you send him away? She said, he said, I paid him. I didn't want him to lose. But right now, Jews are being murdered in Europe. And there's no way we're going to be painting our house at this time. There was a, a worldview, a sense of connection to the Jewish people, a sense of responsibility for Klal Yisrael. Um, there's a famous story about Rabbi Rubenstein Shul that he, um, the, the chairman of his shul, it was quite a large shul in South Chicago, and 
we know in shuls, we all have experience with it, that you have many people that come into the shuls to fundraise, to um, to collect money, and uh, not all of them are legitimate, and some of them can be quite rude at times. And so the chairman of that shul got quite frustrated, and he said, we're not going to have any more. There's no, but we, I'll start a fund. He was a very wealthy man. I'll raise money. I'll start a fund, and we'll distribute via the fund, but nobody's going to come into our shul anymore. We're going to close the doors. And uh, Raoul Rusty was in shul when he got up and made this announcement. He then went to the podium and he said, in our shul, we are not going to have any of Midas storm. We won't have any of the characteristics of storm. And if people want to collect money, they are welcome to come in and collect money. That was the view, you know. And he, and he said, there, there can be nothing more important than helping a fellow Jew. There's nothing more important in your day than being of assistance to a fellow Jew. And the chairman then got up and took, went over to him and kissed his hand. Because he had said that. That was, you know, how it was back then. I think today's times are a little different. But anyway, that was the view. That was the attitude. That was the approach approach of Velozhin. The last story with regards to Avas Torah, also a very beautiful moving story of Rabbi Wan's grandfather, who was a project product of Velozhin. So we see how this became part of his life and how he saw the world. Um, when he passed away, he passed away in 1944, Rabbi Rubenstein. So he's... Uh, family was sitting Shiva, and one of them said that we think that he had a life insurance policy. And um, after the Shiva, they contacted the insurance company, and they said, yes, in fact, he had a insurance policy for ten thousand dollars, which in 1944 was a lot of money. In, in rands, it's also a lot of money even today in 2023. So they um, contacted the insurance company, and they confirmed the policy, and uh, they said, yes, there is such a policy. However, and $9,800 has been withdrawn from it, from the policy. And they said, oh, really? They said, yeah, that just happened recently, a few days ago. We were instructed by the holder of the policy to uh, to write a check, and the check was to be written to the Vardahat Salah, to the um, organization that was involved with saving Jews in Europe in the Holocaust. And uh, and so nine the of the ten thousand dollar policy nine thousand eight hundred has been paid out, and uh, they were all like shocked the children, but they realized what had happened that their father had uh, wanted to do everything he could to save every Jew possible from the ovens of the Nazis in the in the uh, concentration camps, and so he his life savings he sent to save any Jew that he could. Um, and they understood, they understood his attitude that it's our responsibility to save He knew his kids, they didn't have any money either, and they were all struggling, but they would be okay, they would survive, whereas here there were Jews in Europe that were being murdered. So that's a, a, an amazing worldview, a worldview that was very much a part of the um, life approach of the yeshiva of Velozhin. And finally, the third tenet upon which Velozhin was built um, which Rabbi Rubenstein described so beautifully, was that of Avas Eretz Israel, the love of the land of Israel. Rabbi Natsiv, the Rosh Hashiva, was the head of the Chovav which was the organization called the Lovers of Zion. He ran that organization and uh, did a tremendous amount to try and ensure that Jews could return to Eretz Israel. There's a very famous story that's written by the Torah Tamima, Rabbi Epstein, and he writes that um, there was a bottle of wine sent by Baron Rothschild 
to the Nitziv. It was the first bottle of wine that came from the Carmel Wine Company um, produced by Jewish workers in Eretz Israel. And the Torah Tamimah writes that when the Nitziv received this bottle of wine, he went to get dressed in his Shabbos clothes. And he said, it's a bottle of wine produced by Jews in Eretz Israel following the laws, the agricultural laws of Eretz Israel. And he treated this bottle with such love and such reverence. Such was his appreciation for the land of Israel and for Jews living in the land of Israel and for Jews working the land of Israel. Um, Rav Rubenstein, in uh, 1934, he went to visit Eretz Israel. He always tried to visit. He was very upset that he left Eretz Israel. And he went to see Rav Cook. Rav Cook was already an old man and close to his death. And um, when he came back, so some of his congregants said to him, Rebbe, did you see those chalutzim working the fields without a kippah, without tzitzis? What do you think about that? And he answered and he said, when I see Jews working the fields in the land of Israel for the first time in 2,000 years, so my eyes are filled with tears. I can't see anything else. That, that was the view. That was the attitude. We could imagine what he would say today about um, Eretz Israel being built up and the tremendous development of the land of Israel by the Jewish people, which is a great blessing of our times and should be something that we should all, all appreciate and all um, see as a great blessing from Hashem. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. So to conclude, we've been discussing the Velozhina Yeshiva, 131 years since the closing of the mother of all yeshivas and all of the great learning institutions in Eastern Europe were... Uh, had their roots and their foundations in the great Volojana Yeshiva. And we said that the um, three primary principles upon which Yeshiva was based was Avas Torah, the love of Torah, Avas Yisrael, the love of fellow Jews, and Avas Eretz Yisrael, the love of the land of Israel. And so maybe just to give a feeling of, of the um, basis and the atmosphere of Volozhna, we'll end off with one legend that's told about the yeshiva. Um, there was a, another yeshiva that was opened in Poland at the same time as the Volozhna yeshiva, and they um, it was not so successful, as opposed to the Volozhna yeshiva, which was incredibly successful. It, it, one can't describe the great success of the Volozhna yeshiva. And um, this individual who opened that yeshiva in Poland asked Rup Chaim of Volozhna, um, to what did he attribute the success of the Velozhin Yeshiva? So um, this individual said, well, you know, when we opened the Yeshiva, it was a great day of celebration in our town, and we had a big banquet, and we had a band, and we had a big celebration, and that was our beginning. Rechaim said, and he said to Rechaim, so what did you guys do? What, what did Velozhin do when you opened the Yeshiva? Rechaim said, we all fasted was a fast day for us. In other words, the, the humility and the Yerushalayim and the love of Hashem and the desire to do Hashem's will 
was the foundation of the yeshiva, was the undercurrent of everything that they did. And that's what drove Velozhin in those three tenets of Avas Torah, Avas Yisrael, and Avas Eretz Yisrael. Thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful day.